Hello, listeners. This is Dave McGuire from Nerds on Film. Just wanted to chat with you for a second. If you're enjoying the content of Nerds on History, please scoot on over to Nerds on Film, the sister podcast at Nerdonomy.com, and check us out where we sit there and talk about fandom, movies, moving news, what's coming out. It's a great time, full of laughs. I think you'll really enjoy it. So check us out, please. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Check. Check one. Check two. Hey, Brian. What? What? You're going to give me one of those fake facts again, aren't you? No, I'm going to give you a real thing. No. No, this is really interesting, and our listeners would like to hear it. I'm serious. uh, All right, fine. What is it? Okay, William Shakespeare. You're familiar. Of course. Yes. He was originally going to name Julius Caesar. A funny thing happened on the way to the Senate. Really? I know. Isn't it amazing? It's totally amazing. It's also totally wrong and false. You guys are a bunch of idiots. I hate you. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Hey, Brian. I got a question for you. Yeah. How long have you been teaching for? Gosh, uh, been almost five years now that I think about it. Yeah, I've been teaching in the private sector for about five years. Right. And before my current job, I was also teaching. I taught as a tour guide for six years, uh, and then another four kind of in a, in a support role for that teaching, teaching others how to teach. <clears throat> and I found that it always amazes me how much your teachers that you had and how much your educational development that you received kind of caters and influences the way that you become as an educator yourself. That's interesting. I could definitely identify with that. For me, though, being in school up until about high school, maybe even junior high, being generous, I wasn't that interested in school. My mind was on things that are not educational, like superheroes and uh, watching TV and not trying to learn anything. So... See, for me, in school, I was always trying to survive. Yeah. I, I didn't really like school, per se. I didn't really like being in that, in that confined environment. But I found many things that were redeeming, many things that allowed me to keep on going. And I did enjoy very much the whole social structure of it all. The whole being around people and forming relationships and bonds and meeting friends. Some of which, some relationships and friendships have lasted for many, many years. Yeah. And I will say there is that benefit, too, because I have also made friends who I've known since my first day of school. And one of them got married like a month and a half ago. And it was crazy that there was that moment where I was at her wedding. And holy crap, we knew each other since day one of kindergarten. Yeah, that's pretty and, incredible. Yeah. Well, I have a good friend who I haven't known since the first day of kindergarten, but I have known since the first day of seventh grade. And uh, I'd like to actually introduce her to the show, if I may, because she is so very kindly and graciously agreed to join us today. Of course. And so let me welcome to all of our listeners, Miss Heather Zanola. Hi, everybody. Thank you guys so much for allowing me to come on the show. I've been listening ravenously to to both podcasts (laughs) for, for quite a while and sitting in the car and, you know, yelling at the radio, which has been a lot of fun lately. And, um... This type of subject, you know, education and how it affects you is something that's very near and dear to my heart. So I appreciate you guys letting me be on. Well, I'm glad that we've allowed you to become a scene in traffic. I think that's something that we always strive for, that our our listeners will will make a big scene. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We find that very funny when they tell us their stories about that. Now, Eric tells me, though, just to bring this full circle, is that actually you're a teacher. So I'm going to school, and my major is education. But I have previously um, taught for, like, a medical assisting course that I was in. And our teacher had a really hard time teaching the math portion of it because she, she didn't grow up in the United States. And so the way that they had set up math problems was very different than ours. And so when we got to that point, I ended up teaching the course. So that was kind of, like, my first real instance of 
of being able to teach and I love it. I mean, so far I really like it. I'm not in a classroom yet, so ask me in a few years when I've been teaching for a while and we'll see how much yeah. I, I enjoy it. The, the irony for me when I was in school was my hardest subjects were math, science, and history. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> here, here I am <coughs> co-hosting a history podcast, so go figure. Um, yeah, no shocker, history was the only class that I seemed to enjoy and excel in. <laughs> Every other class, I yeah. was just, I was there, I was body, but I was extremely charming, yeah. and therefore my teachers let me get away with having awful grades for never doing my homework, because well, I was morally opposed to homework. The, the two subjects I was good in, and this will make sense if you heard last episode, one was spelling, and the other was religion. I was always very good at religion <laughs> class. So, um, but religion is so historical, though, that that was probably why I didn't even realize that I was falling in love with history in in, in a very different way. Before we go on, I want to kind of just touch upon the fact that both of you guys have kind of said, you know, when I was in school, these are the areas that I like really liked. These are the areas that I was trying to really just get by because towards the end, I kind of want to bring it back home to this because there's been some really interesting information that I found kind of on how our education system now isn't being as effective as it, as it should be. No, so just I, like, I, mean, yeah. I have a whole thing about yeah. that. Just, just keep that yeah. keep So that listeners, remember this <clears throat> no point. Uh, it's somewhere about five minutes in, and uh, if you need to hail back to it, by all means do so. But uh, yes, remember this point. We will bring it up in the near future. I, like I always enjoy doing, however, kind of want to take it back a little ways, take it back to ancient history, and tie it back in with religion for a second, if I may. Well, actually, th- that makes total sense, though, because education as we know it, at least in the Western world, is deeply tied to religion, whether we realize it or not. In fact, I, I want to go back even further than that. I want to go back into prehistory. Way back. Way back. Because in prehistory, when we, when we think about education, we think about how we set up how we're going to instruct others, how we're going to teach others, and how we're going to continue these these understandings and beliefs and what have you for generations to come. It was religion that really wanted to make sure that we, we knew what we were talking about and that it would continue and continue unbroken. And so many of the very early religious specialists were really, in many ways, the first teachers. They had apprenticeships that were very important. These folks would you know, be instructed and follow in these traditions and, and pass it on from generation to generation. And I'm talking about before the advent of writing. Yeah. Well, oral tradition, right? Oral tradition. And there was memorization that was involved. Like, you actually had to learn exactly the words that were being given to you. So this was surprisingly accurate, even though we don't think of oral tradition as being as accurate as at all. Which is a real shame. And I think it's uh, a misconception on our part because we are such a society that is so heavily ingrained in writing everything down, which, you know, really just even a few hundred years ago, it wasn't quite as common as it is now. And going back thousands of years, it was simply unheard of because there there was no writing. Uh, But that tradition, right, that tradition of teaching others and passing that down, obviously stayed within the temples and stayed within the religious uh, uh, institutions that had formed in ancient history. So that when writing did form and obviously <laughs> made a religious connection, then you you clearly found the temple or other religious structure to be that place in which education was going to flourish and be given an opportunity to form. So case in point. Kind of where I wanted to start from was that education was something that were like traditions, values, and skills were passed down to younger generations. And a lot of that was done through trade, fishing, farming, animal husbandry, as you guys had talked about previously. But that the real oral traditions weren't given to kind of, you know, everybody. Those were long-distance traders, people that needed to really interact with, you know, many different types of people. And then the sons and, well, most, I was going to say sons and daughters, but really just the sons of the hierarchy. And all of that was done either within a religious organization or within the palace. Look at Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. Those are the first places that we really see schools as we kind of know them, as we think of them kind of come into existence. And they definitely cater to those individuals who are of a higher status. 
They were the offspring of the ruler. They were members of high society. They were the privileged individuals in society. So, you know, it makes perfect sense then that uh, that position of priest, that position of religious authority oftentimes also passed on to those folks. And so there's their, you're kind of tying in connection with all of that. Yeah. And in ancient Egypt in particular, there was a, a whole portion of the temple that was closed off and cordoned off. It was known as the Per Ankh which translation means the house of life. And in this house of life, you had children starting at the age of about three to four years old, very, very, very young, uh, who would learn how to read and write. They would learn to become scribes. And reading and writing was so key and essential to Egyptian tradition and religion because those spells that were written, those incantations, those things were associated with this continuation of the entire civilization and to them, their entire universe. Knowing these, speaking these guaranteed the survival and safety of everyone, including their pharaoh, their leader. So it was an extremely important job. But you had people who were very good at it, who took to it right away at a very young age and continued and excelled. And then you had those who, you know, they did okay. They were the, the C students. Maybe they, they had a real passion behind it, but they just weren't the sharpest quill in the, uh, in the bundle. I'll tell you, though, reading and writing in ancient Egypt, learning to do so, was a whole lot of fun. Uh, you didn't simply, um, you know, have creative a concept of creative writing, right? You didn't you didn't make an essay for your uh, for your head scribe. You simply copied what had been written, again, and again, and again, until you memorized it. Which in many ways mimicked the oral tradition that this had all kind of been born out of, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's no big surprise that that was the way that learning was presented to these children, and that's the way that learning was presented through much of the ancient world was through copying it. You learned how to do it. And, you know, moving on and becoming a high priest in a temple was a good thing. You know, that was, that was a, a great way to live. And your children would then continue on, at least if you were male offspring. And through most of the ancient world, it was the male offsprings who were given these opportunities to go ahead and, uh, and learn how to read and write and learn to be literate. Uh, whereas many of the, the female offspring would then simply stay home with the mothers and learn the trades of their mother. Yeah. And we see the same thing happening throughout history, all the way up uh, into, through the Middle Ages, and it's really not until the late 19th century that you start to see a much more co-educational system where women's education is becoming a primary objective and it's becoming a more common thing that you see in the educational institutions across the world. Unless you lived in the Aztec world. Oh, really? Then that, that was, was a bit more. different. Yeah, because that was much more female-friendly. It was. In fact, uh, at the age of 15, it was considered the time in which children, children of all genders, would then go to school. And, you know, the boys would learn the trades of war and they would learn how to, to read and they would learn how to, to perform these other actions that were related to religious ceremonies. And then the women would also learn to be a very important part of the religious ceremonies and then also other uh, tips on how to take care of a home and be childbearing because, you know what, that was extremely important. Being able to allow your civilization to continue through the birth of children, that was important. And raising good children, that was important too. So those were considered to be important things taught in a school. And yeah. not just in a home, but actually taken out of that home environment and brought into an organized educational environment. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because when I was doing my research for the show, I came across a wonderful teacher. He's a former teacher. He's not a teacher anymore. Uh, named John Taylor Gatto. And we'll get to him in a, in, a, in a second. He has very radical views about the current education system in our country. But he, he talks about the four purposes behind education. And really, three of them are the ones that are universal. And they talked about one, to help instill values on the next generation, two, to make them good citizens, right? And three, to help them shoulder the burdens of carrying on the society. 
Mm. You know, everything you're talking about is tying into the I think those universal precepts behind why education exists. Absolutely. Well, if you want, you know, if you want your next generation to do well, you need to instill these values in them or, you know, your civilization is going to tank. Right. No, no. What were you going to say? I, I actually misspoke the third precept. The third precept is basically an addition of the second one. The third one was to develop your own, to cultivate your own talents as well and your own natural skill set, which, again, is something that you were also talking about. Absolutely. Excellent. Anybody have anything else to say about maybe ancient culture or do you guys want to move oh i do oh, oh tell us more <laughs> go on shocking i know yeah <laughs> again tying back into the religious institutions being these cultivators of early schools uh so in you know judea for example uh the torah was used as as a perfect learning opportunity for yeah. for children and sure. many of these uh you know synagogues and temples would of course be the the home in which children would be taught and, mm -hmm. and, and they would learn. And from pretty much 64 AD, there were formal schools opening all throughout yeah. uh, the land of Judea. In fact, Torah itself means teaching. Yeah. It means scribe. <laughs> it means law. It means all of these things that all tie in with education. Uh, so it's no big surprise. And again, about six or seven years old, so around this, this very early age in adolescence is when children were brought and incorporated into the school. Yeah. And they would remain there until they were about 18, which I found was kind of interesting. But, but this is also interesting because you're talking about this schooling system. But to be fair, too, at this point in time, it was also more uh, classist. You know, you had to be of a merchant level person to be able to, to afford this type of education. From what I was seeing, though, that education was pretty, pretty widespread and open in Judea, anyhow, in this particular case. In fact, they were teaching, you know, the basics and, and the fundamentals of agriculture, for example, which may not necessarily need to be known by all of the highest members of society. Hmm. Uh, but then again, they also had much more specialized teachings, right? So criminal okay. law, for example, was taught yeah. there and religious rights were taught there yeah. and even how to be a successful husband, how to treat women and how to, yeah. and how to, uh, you know, take care of your family. These were all lessons that were being taught. I was referring more to the reading and interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures, and less about what you were referring to, but um, yes, of course. <laughs> all right, then. All right, then. Now, I would be doing a great injustice, however, if I did not mention ancient Greece. Agreed. And I actually kind of want to start with Sparta, because I find it very interesting that uh, with the exception <laughs> of Sparta, pretty much all schools in ancient Greece and all the Greek city-states were private. They were all privately owned. There was no other kind of government interference or, or interjection except for when it came to training people to, to fight in the military. So with Sparta, however, it was essentially a society that was deeply ingrained within warfare, right? And so they, they simply indoctrinated their children at the age of about seven years old, took them away from their homes, and they lived in the military barracks. They lived in the dormitories there, and they learned the art of war right away. And it was to teach them uh, endurance. It was to teach them uh, through you know sports cooperation. It was to teach them to be warriors and women oftentimes then assume the role of the political leaders in, in the community. And they would learn right alongside their mothers because when the men were all out at war and doing battle, it was the women who kept everything running, the mm -hmm. whole society running. And so I found it to be just kind of an interesting parallel going on where all these other Greek city-states put far less emphasis on women. And even though, yes, there's a very heavy emphasis on, on fighting and warfare, women are still escalated to the extremely high roles and ranks in society to keep civilization going. There's good yeah. balance there. Well, yeah. it, it almost makes sense because if men are the ones who are going out and fighting the wars and maintaining the, the stability of Sparta, well, who, who maintains the city itself? Well, yeah. oftentimes in ancient times, it was the it was the elderly, it was the old, it was those right. who had moved beyond that. I guess beyond in Sparta, the, they were the fighting, fighting for age. a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Whereas in the rest of Greece, it was extremely common for private schools to simply be owned by parents. Homeschooling was extremely common, as you would imagine, but it would actually, if the that parent was extremely good, other parents would send their children to to go and go to school in, uh, in that other person's home, and they would pay them. Uh, they would give them a small fee, but most of the time it was considered free. And they learned many different things, including gymnastics. Uh, they learned music, including poetry and drama and history. Uh, and they learned to become literate. In fact, there's even some suggestions that they had a, a song used to learn the Greek alphabet, which I thought was kind of interesting, considering that's exactly how... How you teach, teach children today, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, though, that how you that you said those. It was, you know, a lot of the arts were at the beginning. That's what they found to be really valuable to their, to their culture and to their value system. And, yes, then they were also teaching them, you know, reading and writing. But that they, they held such, in such high esteem um, the arts and dance and these songs, which is something that I think that we've lost a little bit, that we definitely lack within our own education system. Oh, which absolutely. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brian being the theater major here, and I think understands And the understatement this. of the century. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I went to Catholic school. I went to privately educated schools, and I didn't have a drama department until I was in high school. Hmm. The theater really? I was doing was all done through external programs. You should have gone to the schools that we went to. Yeah. <laughs> that's all they had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all, yeah. Well, and I think we look at it from two very different perspectives, if we can just go on a tangent here. I did a lot of the performing arts, you know, a lot of the dance and choir. I didn't do a lot of theater because I was involved with the other two. But if that was kind of the the central hub of the school. And I did a lot of socializing this, yes. with the people who were mm-hmm. involved in this, yet never actually went up on stage myself, even though I had been asked multiple times to do so. I, I yeah. always well, refused. I, I would have been you phenomenal. Have this, you know, we've been doing this for a while, and you know, clearly you have a very a strong gift for, for podcasting. Otherwise, no one listen to us. Um, <laughs> but you know, I have a feeling, I think there's an actor trapped inside your side of you. And I, I, I think don't we, think he's that trapped. <laughs> I think he's like ready to bust out of the scene. You think he's... he escapes on for nightly oh, absolutely. charades? Damn it. Now you know. I'm a night performer down in downtown San Francisco. <laughs> nightly escapades. Is I was going to keep my hidden identity secret for as long as possible, but. Uh, Not yes, anymore, I... sir. Yeah, he moonlights as a mime. <laughs> <laughs> I hate mimes, actually. I find them to be Do very really? unnerving. I don't like them at all. <laughs> Uh, well, that and clowns. clowns. Don't like clowns. Clowns I can understand. Clowns Ooh, are creepy. Makeup. Yeah. You know, it's the makeup and the fact that they're just kind of hidden. And what do they have to hide? And why it's, are it's you so happy but not happy? Yeah. Yeah. It's just all exaggerated expression is a little freaky. <clears throat> but that's that's me. Okay. And now we're back. <laughs> Tangent aside. Yeah. Somehow pulling it back to Greece for a second. There. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, though, when we think of education, higher education, we also think of Greece as some perfect examples, right? So the Lyceum. For example, I was immediately thinking of the Lyceum, yes, um, and the Platonic Academy as mm-hmm. well, as started by, of course, Plato. And the Lyceum was Aristotle. Yes, was Aristotle. Yes. yes, and so again, you have these these perfect examples throughout history. In fact, they were so strong that when the Roman Empire really came into existence, well, first the Roman Republic, of course, when the Roman Republic became very powerful, and then eventually the Roman Empire, Greek was still actually taught and spoken and was used almost as the language of science within Rome, mm-hmm. which I thought... Which is still to a degree true. Mm-hmm. It is. It's more Greco-Roman, but... But, yeah. it, but the fact that it, the language itself had prevailed and, and, and continued to have been taught and actually was spoken, and that's yeah. kind of how you knew who was of that scientific mind, mm-hmm. uh, just shows how important it yeah. was and how well, I mean, it continued over. Definitely. And there's... Definitely a difference between the academy and the lyceum. I mean, the academy was more about philosophy, right? right. Very much a very set school of thought. The lyceum, I mean, Aristotle was all about trying to understand the physical universe in addition to the, the, the philosophical part of it. So that was more like what we would think of today as a more formalized learning about how the world is constructed. Mm-hmm. 
closer to what we see of today as as a college or, or a university. Right. I feel like I'm bogarting, and I don't want to bogart, but no. I, I want to mention something <clears throat> important because I, I feel like we almost kind of have this unintentional trend on our on our show. Where probably just because of our, our knowledge base where it lay, I, I don't know a whole lot about about the East, and I feel like sometimes it kind of gets skipped over a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about China, please, if I may, and I want to talk a little bit about education in China because I find it to be so very structured and have such a structure very early on um, during the and I think I'm saying this right during the Su Dynasty uh, from about 1045 BC to 256 BC, uh, there were five national schools in the capital of Pyongyang, and the schools taught six basic arts. Interesting. Very Again, interesting. there with yes. the arts. They taught rites, so ceremonial rites. They taught music. They taught archery. They taught charioteering, calligraphy, and mathematics. Interesting. I just want to be clear again how important other yeah. cultures have placed on the arts. Absolutely. I don't think I can say this enough. I find this fascinating because when we get to the Middle Ages in Europe, first of all, there was no grading system. You know, yeah. you, your education was your education, and you learned it. You know, you learned a little bit about literacy when you were a kid, but you more or less started your formal education when you were a teenager. And they taught you what they called the seven liberal arts. In fact, the term liberal arts goes back well into the dawn of the second millennia. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's like the ten hundreds. That's how far back it goes. And there's the trivium and the quadrivium. The trivium is actually where trivia gets its name from today. Hmm. It's because they're the most basic skills that you have to apply to get to the next level up. Well, now uh, I feel bad when I, like, totally bomb trivia night. I'm obviously not doing it right if it's, like, the three basic skills, right? Right. And I have them pulled up here. Let me let me. You should apprentice them. with Brian. I think I'm going to need to because my trivia has been lacking. The trivium were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then beyond that, you would move to the next level, which would be arithmetic, geometry, astronomy and music and then by I like that the point, astronomy part yeah sure and by that point you were considered a master of arts so there was no formal degree given to you at that point and if you wanted to go to the actual degree granting level of doctor which by the way doctor means in in its original latin means teacher you were really formally educated more for either uh, law medicine theology or philosophy hmm. so i just totally went on a major detour for that but another example we were talking about of cross-cultural parallel development. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And bringing it back to China for a moment and bringing it uh, to Confucius for a second. Confucius was a product of this educational revolution that was going on in, in China really? at the time. He was. In fact, he would, of course, be known by later generations as being you know, one of the greatest philosophers of all time. And, in fact, uh, would then influence much of the Chinese education system for another 2,000 years. C can we call him by his real name? I don't know what his real name is. His real, well, his real name is Kung Fu Tzu. Confucius was the Latin version of Kung Fu Tzu. Is this like when we're doing the cold opens no, and I'm making a joke? That's, that's, is this part two of your... No, this is legitimate. That's that's his real name. His How name do you say it? Kung Fu Tzu. Kung Fu Tzu. Yeah, that was his, that's his actual name. I have learned something today. <laughs> I did not know that. dropped. Knowledge I wish I could dropped. say that was fake, but that's actually 100% true. <laughs> no, I think that's fantastic. That's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. I'll say that um, as time went on in China, eventually various educational academies were created. Uh, and in 124 BC, the Emperor Wa Di uh, established the Imperial Academy, which had 30,000 students, all boys between the age of 14 and 17. 30,000? 30, 30,000. And this oh was just over 2,000 years ago. Wait, is it 30,000 all at once, or is this like over over time, right? I'm assuming, like, while their doors were open. Okay, okay right. Just, it's, they're not all at the same time. <laughs> I, I, I should have been say. clear That's with that. That's a really that. big boarding school. But by the time... That's like a, on par with a metropolitan university nowadays. Yes. 
Yeah. I apologize. By the time the Academy ended, uh, which was about 100 years later, roughly, they had over 30,000 students. But if you take 30,000 students over 100 years, that's still a quite impressive... Uh, no, that's absolutely impressive. You know, standing number of, uh, of students in the Academy. It's, it's quite incredible. 300 students a year. Yeah, that's very impressive mm-hmm. for the time. And that's China. Who knew? Thank you for that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far back you want to go or where you would like to start. Some of the information I found was also about Charlemagne, which I know is not quite in the same vein, um, but similar. I think you should go with that because, for me, my knowledge goes just past Charlemagne. I did a little bit of research ah, to bring it back to that. Charlemagne, but really my ball gets picked up just after that, after Charlemagne's time. Excellent. So I just have a little bit of information Please, about Charlemagne. Share it. So his Renaissance time, if you will, was you know 768 to 814 AD. Um, and it was really a surge of literature, art, architecture, again, the arts, as we call them. And he had whole centers of writing that were just there to basically copy these texts, to make yeah. sure that they were living on, so to speak. To really bring this back again, to why we're calling is all these things the arts, because really, this is the time when we were, what was the distinction between an art and a science? I mean, that's a, it's a complex argument, but basically, if a science, would, if it was measurable in some way, it was a science. You can measure quantitative reasoning, mm-hmm. right? Math. You can measure the universe to a degree. So that's right. why it's astronomy. But you can't. You can't measure the quality of, of a of speech a text or, or a speech. A text. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or music. Even even though music is mathematical to a degree. Yes, but <clears> you, your perception of how how well you enjoy, like how much you enjoy music, is not. Yeah. You know, it's not a science. You, you're, yeah. you're loving it, and it's a very uh, right. It's very deep. I hesitate to say spiritual, but it, it can most well, definitely be a point, spiritual was. experience. Yeah, because at this point, the formal knowledge of musical theory didn't happen until well into the, I think, the 17th century. Mm-hmm. So there was no sheet music. It was, you learned to play an instrument, you learned to create music, and you learned to follow tropes that were exactly. taught to you. But it was all based on oral, a feeling. And oral traditions. Yeah, Again, exactly. it's passing down the knowledge from generation to generation to ensure that sure. your values are being carried on. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if we can stress this enough that this is where, like, (laughs) I'm stressing stuff tonight. We don't tend to get very preachy nerds in history, but this is something I think we can be preachy about. I say go ahead. And I think that, you know, and we're a product of, I don't know if I want to say very different, but of different perspectives of education, basically in the same area. So I think it's important that we get preachy. I think we're at the right, you know, time and age to begin to really be able to look back on it with some degree of maturity Mm -hmm. and say, what did we really take from this? Did we wish we would have done better? What do we wish that when we teach our children and, you know, other people's children, what are we looking to pass on? I think that this is the perfect opportunity to preach. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm sorry to cut you off because you were talking about Charlemagne had this almost miniature renaissance going on. Yes. That's kind of all I had. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, I wanted to focus more on like, because there's so much information out there that I really wanted to kind of hone it in and look at our own our own countries, you know, sure. like, I don't know, history of education and where kind of a lot of our values came from. Yeah, and so definitely. I didn't, you know, we could talk for hours right. and hours about where all this came from. So that's kind of, I just yeah. wanted to like touch upon it. Mm-hmm. But before we go there real quick, uh, I want to talk about something that I feel is really important and it's oftentimes skipped over and it isn't really talked about or taught about in the West, in my opinion. And that is the extreme importance of the Islamic philosophers and uh, scientists and astronomers into the 9th and 13th centuries, just, just preceding that time, when you found that Europe was in just this total state of disarray. And so many of these great traditions and customs and knowledge that have been passed down throughout the ages 
was at a risk of being lost forever. And it was actually many of the Arab astronomers and philosophers who, who preserved so much of these traditions and histories yeah. and allowed them to be later picked up ironically as a result of the Crusades. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you'll find that one particular example, which just shines out above the rest of them, is the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. And this was a cultural mixing pot, a city of a million yeah. people at the time, and a chance for so much knowledge from so many different parts of the world to kind of come and channel and funnel through and, and be picked up and then saved, preserved, and continued to be taught within that community and culture. Yeah. And you'll find that works of astronomy, mathematics, agriculture, medicine, philosophy, these were all things that were constantly being translated. It was this translation hub. And you found that they were being uh, translated from Persian texts, Indian texts, Greek texts, uh, from some of the greatest philosophers in our history, from Plato to Aristotle, uh, Hippocrates, I mean, all these huge names. And they were saving all this knowledge for us. Yeah, totally. We can't forget that the Islamic Empire was also very organized with their education as well. Oh, extremely. Extremely. And we also can't forget their contribution, too, which was to mathematics through algebra. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. Algebra itself is the Greek interpretation of Al-Jabr, and Al-Jabr was the, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that's the Arabic word that they used for, you know, variables, working variables into equations. And they're also the ones who developed the idea of the concept of zero yeah. <laughs> and the numbering system. We didn't have zero. We had, we just said, no, oh, it doesn't need to be there. And you astronomy know? in its current form would not exist if it was not for its revival as brought to us um, Absolutely. by Arab astronomers, yeah. which were so extraordinarily well-known from yeah. the time, and their, their knowledge had passed and disseminated through so many right. trade routes and passed on. In fact, interesting little factoid, the very first planetarium came out of the ancient Arab world. This was some spoils of war that was actually taken during the Crusades uh, and brought back to Austria. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist any longer. We only know of it from written descriptions of it, but it was this platform that had a chair that was in the center, and on it would be draped a large tent. And within that tent would be perforations in the form of the constellations. And so the viewer who would sit in it during the daytime would then have this platform which rotated, moved around, you know, the, the, the tent actually moved and the platform could move in a different direction. So they would emulate the kind of movements of the sky. Oh, that's brilliant. And the, the sunlight would then shine through and create that's the constellation. Fantastic. Isn't that incredible? Just imagine the type of, like, time and effort that something like this would take, though, that people were able to spend this type of time not focusing on your health, but they had come to a point in their civilization where they can say, this is where I want to focus my time. This is my specialty. This is what's important. Exactly. Yeah. And we to strive, have that. Yeah, we strive to understand the universe in a way that... Absolutely. And use our creativity to build something that's... This is awesome. I would love to see this today, even with all of our modern technology. Oh, we should recreate you know, it. We, yeah. we could just get... Yeah, let, let's do it. Yeah. Let's put let's it together. It. I um, A planetarium night? <laughs> I'm to, for it. <laughs> to draw another cross-cultural parallel here... While the Islamic Empire was important in preserving lots of the mathematical and a lot of the astro astronomical and philosophical texts, I've referenced it before in the show, but uh, there's a great book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Yes. And it was a lot of Irish monasteries that during the Dark Ages preserved a lot of the classic texts, a lot of the classic literature, and preserved it and translated it and was maintaining it. Uh, until it was rediscovered again during the Renaissance. In fact, you know? it was many of the first monasteries who made that move to universities that began in Ireland, if I'm not if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, many of them begin to pop up in that location first. And, and I can't help but see that again, there's, we see this parallel between how religion preserved knowledge for the culture. Preserved it for us today so we could screw it up and ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. we're doing just a fine job at that. <laughs> yeah. 
There was secular education in the Middle Ages, though not much. Um, the big one was the University of Bologna, which if you look at it, it looks like the word bologna. But it's, which is delicious, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but it's pronounced Bologna, which is in Italy. Um, that was one of the first secular universities around the Middle Ages. And, of course, there were cathedral schools the bishops had taught it, and mostly, it was again, it was a job of the clergy to teach from the very basic reason just to understand scripture. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were to become a priest, of course, you had to learn Latin and Greek to be able to read the Bible. And a lot of it was free. It was a, a moral obligation to them to teach these people and to be able to give this knowledge to them. Well, because if you think about it, if they're not going to teach their flock, so to speak, to, to understand what they're telling them, they're not going to be listening. They're teaching them not only for the people's wisdom, but also so that they can continue on their own traditions and making sure that people are going to continue to listen to them. Does yes. that make any sense? Of it course. Does. Okay. You have to keep the message. Yes. You have to keep it alive. Exactly. And just to put it into reference for our listeners, <clears throat> the University of Bologna began in 1088. Yes. Uh, so we're looking at about a thousand years ago. Yeah. As a secular university. And it's still around. It's still around. It's still going. Holy cow. You, can, you can get a degree there. Next to that, and I think the University of Paris, they're the oldest two universities. Correct. University of Paris began in 1150. Yeah. Wow. And just shortly after that, we're talking about Oxford and Cambridge. Being in developed. 1167. In 1167. So Look not too far. There. Somebody has his notes. Like, like this is the foundation <laughs> of formalized education in these times. And Oxford and Cambridge had strong religious ties originally. They're not really religious schools anymore. So they do have, of course, like Christ College or something that's, mm -hmm. you know, is like in these little smaller schools, informally, you know, associated. But these were, again, these hubs where you learned the liberal arts. Yeah. Um, can I add a quick little side note here? Please do. Absolutely. The, the robe at commencement, the robing cap. Yeah. The cap was just a symbol of scholarship. Hmm. But the robes were actually a functional piece because a lot of these universities were in castles. And they were quite drafty. So the robe was literally just functional <laughs> in keeping you warm. Really? Yeah, that's all it was. So the masters, and of course, the masters had more decorative ones because they were to show that they were more educated. I can see the, the, the graduating class of 1088, and they're all just sitting there freezing their butts off and half of yeah. them die of pneumonia a week later. And, and they're like, you know what? Next year, let's try robes. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the closest image that I can say you could connect it to is if you had seen the earlier Harry Potter movies, those are more based off of the, the scholastic robes. Interesting. That were developed around this time. Which is funny because if you think of the robes, in quotes here, that people graduate from high school and even college from, they are, you know, paper thin, so to speak. If it's a warm day when you're graduating, it's basically like being, you know, a baked potato now. They're, they're not doing <laughs> a whole lot to keep you... Safe. Comfortable yeah. and or safe. So yeah. they've, I think they've come down a little bit. They've retained their symbolic value there and that's go. about that's it. it. Yes. And these yeah. were not the, the thin <laughs> pieces of nylon or whatever you want to call them. Polyester. These were wool, damn it. Wool yeah. and warm. Exactly. <clears throat> I have absolutely no idea, listeners, if they're made of wool. I'm just assuming they probably were. <laughs> we're let's just go with it. Okay, let's go with it. We're going to go with it. We're going to go with it. If we're wrong, somebody please let us know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, we've covered a lot of what the foundation of educational institutions were. Let's bring it forward a little. Let's talk a little bit about education now. Yeah. Because this is a really important topic. And I know that we are nerds on history, right? We're, we're referring to our history, but our history is important for understanding where we are in the here and now. Yeah. And so it's important to bring this up. It's important to talk about. Definitely. How Good. now do you want to be? Well, I think it's important if we start with the idea of compulsory education. Okay. You know, the idea yeah. that it was a formalized, mandatory requirement and according to John Taylor Gatto, as I referenced to earlier, that doesn't really start again until about Prussia in the 19th century. And that was the fourth purpose they was talking about, which was the Prussians really developed it, not so much for the other three purposes, mm. but to make obedient citizens. Yeah. Hmm. Keep you under your thumb. To keep you under your thumb, exactly. To keep you from causing a ruckus. 
as it were. Hmm. Um, and that's also where grading came from. Grading was around, and not necessarily in Prussia, but it was around this time that grading as a system was developed. As a tool of demoralization, correct? <laughs> yeah, the term, the, the, the grades A through F came from uh, grades for meat. <laughs> for now really, I feel really bad. For grading meat. Yeah, Uh-oh. like the grade A beef. Yeah, same system. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> wow. Who knew? Yeah. I'm reminded of stories of my of my grandfather and pictures of his of his classes when he was growing up as a child and about 1910 or so I think we have some of the earliest pictures of him going off to school so just mm. as a very young boy and mixed grades right they usually had a single classroom they had it divided by the youngest kids and the oldest kids that's how they kind of did it and it wasn't until a bit later that you found these really strict kind of more formalized grades and the division of ages by just a single year uh, dividing them apart until a bit later. And, you know, in smaller rural communities, which, believe it or not, San Jose, despite its population now, was a small, very rural community when my grandfather was uh, was born. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you did. You didn't have a whole lot of kids to fill up a single school. My father, you know, when he graduated from high school, was uh, a graduating class of, what was it, 30 or 40, I think it was, something like that. So even even in his education, graduating high school in the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, even still had a very, very small class by comparison. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to think of in our graduating class. I was just about to ask you, I'm thinking, I it, want to say 400. Yeah, I'd say at least, yeah, at least 400. Yeah. We, we, we came from a pretty good-sized school. Yeah, I was really excited. I really wanted to be the last person to graduate. If yeah. we can just tangent here for a second, because <laughs> my last name starts with a Z. I wanted to be the last person to walk across that stage. They didn't let me. No. I was so peeved. They didn't. Yeah. They couldn't. They couldn't. Because <laughs> you weren't the last person. I was. Were you? I was the last one in our graduating class. Oh, that it just... But, it... but then they had, like, the people who, like, sang. Ah. Like, for some reason, they were behind me. Those jerks. Unfortunately. You know who you know, you honorarily, honorarily, I will always recognize you as the last person to walk across the stage. Thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. You're talking about the, these small classes, and I immediately think of the schoolhouse. You know, the image we see from the late 19th century, where it was. It was the one schoolhouse in town, and it was... You went there to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yeah. And, that was about it. And actually, that's really important, too, because, again, around this time, it was not common for you to really be in school past that basic level. Sure. And everything else was self-taught at that point. You know, college was so far out of the realm of many people, unless, of course, again, you were becoming a doctor or a lawyer. That was what you went to college for. You didn't even have, didn't even have high school. High school is a post-World War II concept you know, yeah. or even junior high school. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was perfectly fine for you to leave school by the age of 12. I'm not saying I'm, I'm supporting truancy at all, because I'm sure. not. <laughs> um, but there's a lot. Of, and John Taylor got references all these people who were self-educated. You know, yeah. Uh, a couple of them were, were our greatest presidents. You know, Washington and Lincoln were both self-educated men. Andrew Carnegie, who was a, you know, a captain of industry, right, uh, mm-hmm. was a self-educated man. Yeah. And it, it, it's just, I find that fascinating, you know. that we Even think. some of our more <clears throat> modern uh, visionaries and... and uh, Innovators have also dropped out of college or Steve Jobs. I think it's Steve Jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Bill Bill Gates, both, and Michael Dell, like the guys who founded the the (laughs) consumer computing industry, were all college dropouts. Which really speaks to something that I want to get to later about imagination in education. Um, So again, just put a pin in that, everybody. Everybody who's listening, pop a pin. We're going to come back to this because it's really important to bring it at home later. Absolutely, will do. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, so if I can, Please. I'd like to move to America. Do, do, America. Do, do. America. Absolutely. America. Yes. America with sports and beer. Purse. Beer. Let's um, do it. Does anybody out there know, and by anyone, I mean you too, um, <laughs> know the first public and still running school in America? First Ooh. public? First, 
First public. First public and still running school in America. My guess is it's in Boston. I don't know the name of it, but I'm guessing it's in Boston. Am I right? Yes. Ooh. Boston Latin School. It was opened in 1635. Wow. And is still running to this day. And it became one of the first what we consider to be like prep schools. Lots of these kind of popped up after the fact. And this was the feeder and the beginning of the Ivy League system. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Or, or well, the, the precursor to it. The precursor, excuse me, yeah. of the Ivy League schools on, on the East Coast. Yeah, because it was you had to go through these to get to the yes, Ivy League schools. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because you don't, I shouldn't say you don't think of education that early in America, but in our schools, we're taught not a whole lot about our education system. And from that time, you're really looking at, you know, the, the leading up to and the different wars in the Americas and how this all... How we know, all came of, together as a country. How we all came together as a yeah. country. But we don't really talk about the people and the process, education-wise, that these people went through to get here. So I, I found it to be really interesting. This was a lot of new stuff for me. Um, well, sure. Look at um, second president of the United States, John Adams, was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. well-known lawyer from Boston. I'm mm-hmm. just going to throw it out there. I have no idea if he attended that school or not, but uh, <laughs> was a Bostonite and, uh, you know, was very well educated. Uh, as was Thomas Jefferson. You know, these are all folks who were extremely educated and, and of that high society, right? Of that, of, it, yeah. they, they would have been wearing uh, sweater vests with uh, their, their logo on it if they had been born in uh, 100 sure. years later, I'm sure. Well, Absolutely. Jefferson, his major contribution it was on his tombstone. We talked about this during the president's yeah, episode. Yeah. Was that he founded the University of Virginia, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, that, that was the he then was more important than being the president. Yeah, absolutely. So something that I want to just touch on really quickly mm. was that women in education have kind of been a side note. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's the, definitely, yeah. You know, unfortunately, we can't like rewrite history to make it any better, but you know, this is our lot. But one thing that I found was really interesting, I'd love to hear your guys' opinion on this, is after the American Revolution, there was kind of this surge called Republican motherhood. Have you guys ever heard of this term? No. no. And it was, it was really cool. I was really excited mm. when I found this. It was a surge in women's education and that they wanted women to be more highly educated so that they could then teach their children the value of being part of the republic. That they were teaching these core values to ensure, again, like in Prussia, I'm assuming that they were being obedient, being <laughs> obedient and understanding the importance of this new republic. I thought it was super cool. That's I mean, fascinating. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I, I don't really know where to go with it after that, except that... Well, I find it ironic Considering yeah. the hostility that was given towards the the very thought and idea of women as being equals, and the women having a vote, and women, you know, being in politics, for example, and I'm just thinking, I don't know if either one of you has seen Lincoln yet. Have no. you seen Lincoln? I, no I spoilers, want to please. so badly. You but need I, to see it. I, I Martha and I went to go see it shortly after it came out. Actually, I think we saw it on opening night. It was extremely well done, and. You know, putting aside for a moment the performances, which were extraordinary, there was this one scene that was just really chilling and breathtaking for so many reasons. But they were they were talking about the you know Thirteenth Amendment and passing the Thirteenth Amendment, mm-hmm. and obviously uh, a particular senator was in opposition to this, and he was speaking about how he didn't believe it was natural and how dare they and after they free slaves, what are they going to do next? Give them the right to vote, and then shortly after he says that, which riles up you know a good half of the House of Representatives. Yeah. He then says, what's next after this? We're going to give women the right to vote? And then both <laughs> sides of the house just erupt in, you know, screaming and yelling. And it gave me goosebumps because it was not an America that I know, not an America I've grown up with. But that's how it was back then. That's the mm-hmm. view that people had towards women. And I find it so extremely ironic that back in ancient times, what women were expected to do 
was to raise their children and use them as an effective workforce. They were managers. Particularly in ancient Egypt, women were in charge of all property management. That was pretty much their job. Men who were divorcing their wives, and they did have divorce back in ancient Egypt, who were questioning their wives' financial abilities would oftentimes be looked down upon and could very well end up with the wife leaving with more than the husband had. It was possible. And I find that it's, it's very interesting now in modern days when we look at uh, food preparation, you know, the making of, of textiles, and even the, the teaching of raising of children, the psychology behind that. These are all professions that men are very much involved in these days. Oh, we're going to get to the, the psychology of child rearing. Don't, <laughs> don't you worry. But... um. If I can, just really quickly to bring it back, after this surge of women's education, let's say that you had a daughter who was highly educated, but for whatever reason you had no dowry, you had no money to help marry her off. Right. You could actually use her education as collateral for her dowry. Really? Th think about that for a second. She, if you hmm. taught your daughter well enough that she, as a person, was going to be valuable in her marriage. Again, think about like bringing it back to ancient Egypt, having a woman who could do this property management, so to speak, to be her own educated self yeah. was her payment, which in this day and age is so crazy to think that you had to, what's the word I'm looking for? Educate um, your daughters in order to sell them off? It, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's much better than I was going to put it. But that by 1840, you really had this entire, well, I shouldn't say an entire generation, but you had a much larger base of women who were well-educated. Yeah. And that yeah. this really kind of brought on another yeah. cultural or social revolution after well, the fact. Not only that, but it's also kind of a backhanded insult when you think about it too, because it's saying that the women who aren't educated are they Worthless? have a lot of money, yeah. worth a lot of money, Gosh. but they're but they're dumb. Yeah, yeah. and it's another really really <laughs> bad taste bad. in your mouth. Exactly. Yeah. As a woman, I find it to be interesting that my worth, and even to this day, think about it, our personal worth to some point, when people say, oh, what do you do for a living? Like, isn't that one of the first things that you ask a person when you meet them? Yeah. You know, wh what are your qualifications for being where you are? And so it's not that much different. Your worth is tied to your knowledge. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting parallel. Yeah, and I think in this least. area of the country, the weight has been placed less on your knowledge and more on the formal piece of paper that Absolutely. you have paid thousands of dollars for. Which some people receive honorarily. Honor, exactly. And some people receive it in such a way you imagine, my God, yeah. but how honor, did they ever get this? But an honorary degree implies, though, that you had enough knowledge and enough contribution to the field that you didn't need to go right. through the, the coursework to earn that degree. You know, you made a contribution. Usually. Yes, usually. A good example would be Steve Jobs, right? Steve yeah. Jobs would easily have been given a PhD, and I think he was. I can't remember a specific I believe example. he was, yeah. Yeah. Honorarily, because of his contribution to computer science. I believe it was through Stanford, wasn't it? Yeah. And in this area, it's incredibly hard to find a decent job without having at least bachelor's, preferably master's at, degree. At least, right? Yeah. We're, we're talking... And there's parts of the country where it's still okay for where kids are barely graduating high school. It's, yeah. it's very disproportionate. And it's frightening how many people leave with a degree, end up in a powerful position, yet have absolutely no common sense. Yes. The, common sense is completely different than intelligence. As, as one of our, well, one of my previous teachers from high school said, no, maybe you can guess who said this, mm. common sense is not common. He had a mustache. Our, no, it was, our, it was my <laughs> choir teacher, and she was kind of this very... Okay, I wasn't going to guess that one. No, no, so. I was like, I, as soon as I said it, I'm like, you're not going to get it. But that it's not common anymore. That this isn't what we're teaching children. We're teaching them, and we're not even teaching them. We're, we're telling them this is what you need to know to pass this test so that this school can get more money so that we can have the next group of people to come through to pass this test and so on. It's ironic because it's, it's memorization, right? Which is how we taught children originally back 
in ancient times. Yes. Only it worked back then. <laughs> it worked it had a purpose. There was a purpose because we imparted upon our next generation that this is what you need to know for this reason. And forever. This and is for, something you have to remember and know and yeah. know for all of time. To, this is what you need to know to pass this test. Yeah. Yes, you're and, teaching to the test. And that's not to discredit examination because there's there's various studies to speak to the effectiveness of testing in general. Mm-hmm. A lot to talk about against standardized testing. But, you know, to take a test, some people say that actually that helps them learn. But at the same time, the objective is different. Yeah. If you're trying to learn the material to help better yourself, it's a whole other mindset you approach than trying to pass a test so you, so you can move on yes. and get forward. And there's different ways of testing. If you're <clears throat> testing somebody's knowledge and you give them an open forum and you allow them to speak to that knowledge and, and speak to their understanding of that knowledge, that's very different than multiple choice. And I think that, to bring it back to the trivium, it seems like those are the most important things of understanding logic, how mm-hmm. you think, grammar, how you write, and rhetoric, how you speak. Yeah. Can we no. just be clear? Nobody, there's no speech classes given yeah. lower than college education anymore. We're not teaching our children how to be effective communicators That's at a all. Travesty, really. <laughs> it's funny. I was just talking to my girlfriend about this, the exact same thing the other night. It's interpersonal communication. Even is been a virtue we we, we do not have yeah. currently yeah. in our culture in the United States, and it is very sad because you have all these misfired. Part of it due to text messaging. I won't, I won't, I won't, blame, I won't, I won't, I won't blame technology solely, but poor communication skills mixed with shorthand techno- writing and technology mm-hmm. equals lots and lots of uh, flame wars happening, happening on mobile devices. Well, and this idea that we're not having an open forum to discuss these things also leads people to, you know, let's say you're in a group project with somebody and they say, oh, well, this is my portion of the project. This is what I'm going to do. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's okay, but, I, you know, and you're thinking this in your head, oh, but I wish they would do this differently, but you don't want to offend anybody anymore. We're not actively engaging other people to better ourselves and to better them. We're, we're afraid to hurt people's feelings. You're compliant. You yes. simply want to go along with it. All right, let's get it done. So it's done. Exactly. Yeah, not let's learn something from this. Let's show our passion for it. Let's show our interest for it. And when you had just a few of those basics, a few of the fundamentals that you really had to focus on, you could find what you were truly passionate about. And then you could use that to your advantage and you could use that to aid in your understanding and your exploration of and articulation of all these other things that you were expected to learn. Nowadays, it seems like you're over inundated. You have yeah. so many different things being thrown at you at a young age that it's almost impossible for you to choose one thing to be passionate about. And when you do choose that, unless it's something that's like in the theater arts and it has its own kind of offshoot that can be developed and nurtured outside of the other academic properties of that school, yeah. then it's not really encouraged. <clears throat> and the more I think about it too, now I'm thinking about the clients I work with in, in the private sector, the biggest hole I have to fill in is not the material itself, but how they absorb the material. And a lot of that goes back to, I think, an understanding of logic, you know, mm-hmm. understanding of, yeah. of what's the progression that you take. Because once you find the pattern, because the brain works with patterns, right? Once you find the logical pattern, everything falls into place. And acknowledging you know? the fact that everybody learns differently. Yes. True. There are so many different learning styles. And we're, we're discussing this a lot more these days when we talk about autism, for example. Being the parent of an autistic child, I have this very intimate knowledge of, of what that means. My daughter, when she learns, she's capable of learning, but she learns in a very different way. And I, I have to approach it in a different way, and that's why she has a very specialized curriculum that she follows, because it, it does cater to the way that she learns. And we're really only recently understanding that and acknowledging that in our education system. We're not applying it, though. That's what's sad. 
not not on a large enough scale to make a difference. Yeah. I, I think we are on small scales. I think there are some really pioneering individuals who are out there who are trying to make a difference and are making a difference, but it's just not as widely accepted as it needs to be. And we need to accept that it goes beyond more extreme cases, and it simply applies to the way that everybody learns. Yeah, Everyone learns in a different way. We need to cater to that. And the yeah. only way, in my opinion, that we're going to do that is addressing these enormous class sizes. You know, when I was a kid and I was going to elementary school, I had, what, like 17 kids in my class. And even yeah. then, that was a pretty good number of kids. Yeah. By the time I was in high school, there were 30 kids in my class. That's almost double. How is a single teacher expected to make an important and relevant connection with yeah. each of those children in their class. It's just not going to happen. Even in private school education, pretty much ever since second grade or so, I had an average, a pretty solid base of between 35 and 37 kids in my wow. in my grade, in my, wow. in, my, in my class. Yeah, That's a lot of kids. Even in a private school. That's, that's yeah. That was the entire grade, yeah, because there, was, there wasn't enough to break the grades up into different oh, okay, classes. Oh, even so, though, that's frightening. The, yeah, exactly, the entire class of that year. And it is tough. I mean, the teachers tried. And there's also, unfortunately, we went through a lot of teachers who couldn't last take a ticket more than a year or so because, first of all, we were awful. <laughs> uh, we were truly just awful people. And they, well, I wasn't awful. I was trying to pay attention. Oh, I was a good one. Everyone sure. else was absolutely no, terrible. But everyone, no, well, I, I do legitimately mean that. Um, a lot of people were talking and raising hell. And <laughs> I just, my friend, I yeah. just. But we made a teacher cry once and left the room. Oh, was, God, that's awful. Yeah. You are a terrible person. Yeah. Your class. I shouldn't say you. Your class, if you're listening. <laughs> you can project it onto them. It's okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I can go off on that for a second, think about the importance that throughout ancient history we put on the teacher. And even. We used to. Yes. Yeah. The, this, this status that they held in society, this role that they had, they were of the upper class, they were of the top paid people in the world and this is something that is completely and totally universal across the entire globe yeah the teacher was vital mm. to that society and culture the teacher today is one of the lowest paid under appreciated appreciated and least likely to receive the kind of basic necessities that they need for life my mother my mother's been a teacher for years for 40 years and <laughs> It was always such a struggle when they were growing up. You know, there was there was three kids, and my my father worked uh, in the county park system as their historian, but worked on a more part time basis. Mom was the one who was really the breadwinner and was you know bringing home the bacon, and we had to live off of a teacher's salary. And the fact that we can even utter that, and we all know what we're talking about, sad. Yeah, it's a really sad thing. And then we compromise too. I, I, I want people to understand what I'm about to say. I feel like again, teachers are extremely important. That's what I've. That was the whole point of what I just said. At the same time, though, we need to be very careful about who we are bringing in to educate our children as well. And I feel like there's almost been this kind of, we're desperate. We really need somebody to come on in, so we're just going to pick anyone off the street and pull them in here and teach our kids. Yeah. The funny thing is, in, in the state of California, where we're doing this podcast from, if you ha haven't followed Wait, that, really? By now, Wait. Oh. Palm yeah. trees. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yes. we're, not, we're not in some like spatial pod that's that's. Oh man, eight, you guys told me that it was going to be a pod. I'm, all, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> wait, now. wait, but it's a podcast. <laughs> oh snap! Go on. Sorry. Um, the California's teacher credential program is. The funny thing is, it's actually one of the more stringent in the country. You have to have a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. and you have to go through this certification program to be both a substitute teacher and to be a full time teacher. Whereas in some states, you can teach elementary and high school and not even have a college degree. Um, yet California is one of the lower states in the system that has lower test scores, and we're also one of the lower countries in the world with, with, as far as test scores are concerned. Yeah, It's this weird distinction. And I think the problem is is it comes to education funding. And it's again, it goes back to the respect for what, what we value 
in our culture because you have these teachers who are fairly well prepared, but they have none of the resources they need to adequately pass on the knowledge. All right, I feel like I'm going to really make some people angry when I say this, so I'm really sorry for angry emails that come up after this. While I agree that I think that it's, to some extent, the funding of our public school systems, how much of the money that is going into this is then going out to teacher unions and to other things where the money isn't being directed at a classroom. Mm-hmm. And I guess that, that mm-hmm. could be said for any organization where money comes in, is then divided up between people who may not be at the front lines of these situations and don't adequately give the funding. And sure. I, I'm not saying that I am an expert on unions or how this money is spent, but I feel that at this point throwing more money at the problem is not going to be the proper solution. No, it's... it's, it's- Definitely more, not as black and white as that at all. And there's a lot of bureaucracy that goes into it in the state of California. And it could um, be a, goes beyond just unions. It's going, how is this money all being spent? I mean, how many superintendents are driving absolutely. around in nice cars because that money was funneled to that superintendent yeah. to buy a nice and we car? See it in, we see it in all levels, too. I mean, in, in the California alone, um, there's a statistic that the, uh, <laughs> this is, again, a, a generalization, so I apologize, the salary of all of the people who are running the colleges, either the CSU trustees, mm-hmm. either the um, the Board of Regents through the USCs or the Board of Governors through the California Community College System, superintendents as you're talking about, salaries have gone up, but funding for classes has gone down. Which is, just makes no sense at all. Whatsoever. Yeah. And it looks so bad on paper when you when you hear the numbers like that. It's like you look like you're running a Ponzi scheme <laughs> as yeah, it were absolutely. with schools. And it's it's horrible. And you're right. Part of it is the bureaucracy behind the institutional organization and misallocated resources. Yes. And yes. let's keep in mind, if we're talking about how our education system is in trouble, this is an education system that is teaching future teachers. <laughs> so right. it can't get better unless we really make an abrupt and quick change so that future generations have more of an opportunity. I feel like any teacher who's going to be in a classroom needs to be in an apprenticeship. They need to have a a senior teacher who is there to guide them and help them. And beyond just a, I have these four people who report to me, they're student teachers, and I'm trusting you guys to go out there and do it because I don't have the numbers to to deal with it. We need to be able to give them the proper amount of time, guidance, and really teach them what that other person has learned, what that senior person has learned, and give them the skills that they need to be able to to be passionate about this, to be considered in our society so important. And I'm just thinking about the future. Not so much what is going to happen, but now we're looking back on this era. What will we say? It goes back to the virtue. We've, we've been mentioning numerous times. Was this a time where we really held this as a virtue? And I think the answer is going to be a no, unfortunately. A very somber no. Yeah. I was going to try to make an optimistic point with that, but I, it just it didn't go... Well, <laughs> I'm always reminded of one of my, my favorite sayings. Even the word hopeless has hope in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, maybe we can bring some hope into this and make it a little bit better. I, While doing research for this, I found some really interesting TED Talks, and I'm sure you both... Oh, listen to Ted, of course. Ted's great. Phenomenal. And there is one gentleman, Sir Ken Robinson. Does his name ring a bell? He's a British educator, and he's had two really wonderful TED Talks. First one is in 2006. I believe it had something like 13 million views. Wow. Mm. It's phenomenal. And he talks about how... Huge. Remember the pin from earlier, everybody? He talks about how we're not giving children the ability to have imagination in school anymore. What we've done is we've taken the imagination and the creativity out of children and have now told them that this is how you have to learn. These are those skills that we talked about earlier that, you know, to pass this test, you need to learn this. And so what we've really done is we've created an environment where 
only some of the students will excel and lots of others have now said, well, I'm not creative. I don't, I don't know what this outlet is for me. This is why we have so many college dropouts. You're a very creative man, Brian. To be in theater, you know, you have to, you must have that creative bone, right? If somebody were to ask me, oh, do you think you're creative? I'd probably say no. Yeah. And it's because these things aren't seen and honed and developed in children and that, you know, we're saying these are these aren't important life skills. Why, why do you need to know how to do this thing? You're, you know, why do you need to learn how to sing? You're not going to be a singer. Why do you want to learn how to draw? You're not going to be an artist. You need to learn what we consider a real life skill. And this is where we're killing children. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I we, we talk a lot about Steve Jobs and Apple on this podcast. And I, I can't help but make another reference in his last interviews that they had shortly after he passed away. He talked about how Apple he always viewed was a company of culture because the, the programmers who were there weren't not just programmers. They were poets. They were musicians. They were painters. And it was that knowledge, that imagination that brought the culture to what they were doing. It, it enriched the other work that they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't, and you were just saying that and just using different words, you know? <laughs> well, and I think that Ken Robinson, and I, I could be misquoting here, but I believe he said it was Leonardo da Vinci said that we are all born creative. We are all born artists. The mm -hmm. key is to continue to be an artist through adulthood. Mm -hmm. It's that we lose it. That There are so many other things that you know are required of you that you lose this ability to be creative. Like yeah. how awful is that that we have kids in, in school now who are, we're telling them, oh, you don't need to, to understand that. You don't need to know that skill. And you know, I'm, they're going to be using the term skill very loosely. Yeah. You're, you're never gonna be that. You need to learn how to be this. Like how awful is that? And this is how we're structuring our education. If we never dared to dream, we would have never landed on the moon. Right. Exactly. We would have never come up with the concept of vaccinations. Yeah. That's all. Well, that's a hot topic. That's a whole about whole other thing. But I mean, just the idea of taking a virus and infecting it into your body just for the sake of saving you from that infection in the future. Somebody had to be brave enough to really say that. Brave. And that that kind of creativity invokes that kind of bravery, if you will, to be able to to step out among mm -hmm. everyone else and say, "I've got an idea. I might be a little bit nuts here." But let's see if we can work with it. And then you draw all these other people to you, and they all want to nurture this idea and make it work and take what it takes to, to get it there. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you 100%, Heather. I feel like creativity is so vital, so important, and it is something that, you know, if our education system isn't doing it, then parents need to recognize it and think back to mm -hmm. a time when they were young and they had that creative bone in their body or maybe they still do and they want to nurture that within their children let your kids play with their food as long as they eat it it's okay you know yeah. let them let them express themselves don't shut them down let them be in their own world too yeah i remember i was uh not to get too much too personal here i remember there was a point in time where i was not by my parents necessarily but by my grandparents i was shamed a little bit for playing by myself now it, it was a little antisocial, but i was in my own world you know, and I think part of my creativity today comes from me being able to go into that place and yeah. think weird things that just whatever. And you're comfortable in that. Exactly. And it's two different parts of the brain. The part of your brain that just lets the ideas flow, the intuitive part of your yeah. brain comes out with good stuff most of the time, not all the time, <laughs> you know, and it's the analytical part that, that says, that filters it and says, okay, well, let's, let's try this. Maybe let's put that in the back burner, you yeah. know, and we're focusing more on a, on a, on a culture that is analytical and not intuitive enough. Yeah. So I'm also taking like a childhood development class right mm -hmm. now. And our teacher was telling us about this preschool that has a very different mindset about how to teach children. And they, 
you know, let's say you have children, Eric. Mm -hmm. If they, they draw you a picture and they go, Daddy, what do you think? And they want to know your opinion. They want to be validated by these things. And at this school, instead of saying, oh, that's really great, you ask the child, well, how does it make you feel? Interesting. Just think about that Turn for a second. Turn it back on them for a second. Yeah, let them have self-validation. Let them tell you how they feel about it, and then you can respond. But instead of just saying, oh, that's good, and giving kind of this very um, rote answer, because, you know, especially if you're a teacher, you're going to have lots of these kids going, you know, Miss Heather, Miss Heather. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? What do you think? Asking them. It's such a, yeah. an easy concept to, to say, but to, to be one of the first people who's like, we need to ask our kids what they think. Yeah. Or even be preemptive about yeah. it. As exactly. soon as they start walking up to you with a picture, be like, oh, tell me all about this. What's yeah. this all about? Exactly. And, and other co other cultures are, are doing this already. Um, one of my clients uh, is a fashion historian. So she, oh, cool. Yeah. Very, very, like, it's really cool. cool. Like, like, interesting, right? We might have to have a history of fashion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a fascinating woman. And she was talking about how in France, they teach color interpretation from kindergarten. Not just these, not just these are the colors, which is what we learned, but also, what does this color make you feel? What do you think of when you think of this color? And they're learning that interpretation at like age four or five. And that's something we don't really, really talk about until like a, a, like a visual arts class that you get to in college. That's really cool. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I like that. There's your hope. make you feel. There's your hope. We yeah. brought it back to hope, yeah. everybody. We're going to we're gonna have to be importing all of teachers from France. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, I feel like this has been... Quite an enlightening episode. Definitely, we definitely got ha we're on a soapbox for for it, but for rightfully so. This is an apolitical issue. Yeah. You know, this is a virtue that every culture that is civilized should have. And of course, as always, listeners, we encourage you to be a part of this conversation. Tell us how you feel. Tell us how you think the education system in the United States or in the part of the world that you're listening has uh, has evolved and changed over time and what you would want to get out of it as well. Uh, you can, of course, uh, contact us via email. Uh, you can contact me at thebrickmont at nerdonomy.com. You can contact me at brian, with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, at nerdonomy.com. And, of course, you can also reach us on Facebook. Uh, head on over, give us a like, give us a comment on there, or on uh, on Twitter, on yeah. the Tweetverse. And if you're interested in learning more about what we talked about tonight, I'll, I'm just going to put out one of the couple of the websites I was at tonight. Of course, Wikipedia is a great start place, mm -hmm. starting place for it, and the History of Education is a very well-cited article. Yeah, it's official research article yeah. on, on Wikipedia. Yeah. So it's it's definitely valid as far as Wikipedia is concerned in that gray area. Two websites we're going to give you. One is medievallife.net, uh, medieval-life.net, I'm sorry, and learning about education and learning about, in a very summarized way, very cool site, well-designed, talking about what was education like in the Middle Ages, you know, just just to learn a little bit more about it. What was life like? What was the clothing that people wore? All that kind of cool stuff. Um, and then about John Taylor Gatto and what he's trying yeah. to do. Uh, he's trying to make a documentary about education, and he's trying to get funding for it. So this is a great website. Uh, his name is John with, with an H, JohnTaylorGatto.com. Or just Google John Taylor Gatto, and you'll pull up his website. Fascinating man. Talks a lot about compulsory education, where it came from. And as always, don't take our word for it. Go out there, go to the library, cite some of these wonderful references that Brian has given us, or go online and do some of your own research. And uh, maybe even go back to school. Take a night class. Take an online class. Sure. Maybe in, engage in education in a way that uh, only the 21st century can do. Totally. And th the great thing is you don't even have to go to school anymore. You can do it through Khan University. You can do it through TED. You can do it through iTunes. iTunes University. Yeah. Entire college iTunes courses U. that are mm -hmm. now free to look at. Some tremendous resources th that are out there for you to teach yourself. 
yeah. about more about a topic. Yeah, and we also need to say a big thank you to Heather. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank Heather. you guys so much. This is I've been really excited to do this for a while with you guys, and I've been and Eric can definitely tell you I'm like, what are we gonna do it? What are we talking about this? Let's do <laughs> yeah. it. Let's do something about it. So <laughs> yeah. I I am very excited, and thank you guys so much. No well, we hope to have you on the show in the future. I was gonna oh, say you're certainly welcome on our show anytime. You guys, you guys, let me know. I'm happy to chat. Fantastic. Great. If people want to contact you, do you have any information you feel comfortable giving out? Oh, absolutely. You can find me on. I don't have Twitter. I'm not. I'm not a tweeter. You're um, not a twit. I'm not. I'm, no. <laughs> not even a little bit. But you can definitely find me on Facebook at heatherzanola at gmail.com. It's like granola, but with a Z. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Cool. Fantastic. Uh, well, Heather, Brian, thank you very much this evening. Thank, thank you, you very much, guys. You guys have a great week.